Our passage today is going to be Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And while you're turning there, just, just some context from the last sermon, which was back in chapter 1. In that sermon, we focused on the identity of Christ. We saw who he is and what he's done. We saw that he, as the image of the invisible God, shares nature and being with the Father and with the Spirit and perfectly manifests the glory of God to us so that we may see and apprehend him. We saw that Jesus, as firstborn, is preeminent over all creation. And he has the right to and inheritance of everything in all creation. He made it all. He owns it all. He rules it all. And he alone has the authority to determine how the world is ordered, functions, and for what purpose. It was all created to bring him glory. We saw his power to create everything with a word and to sustain it by the word of his power. We saw his preeminence over the new creation, the church. As head, he rules over the church and is the source of all its nourishment and growth. We saw that he began a new creation as the firstborn from the dead, that he rose victorious over sin and death and gave new life to all who follow him in the resurrection. We saw that through the blood of the cross, peace has been made between us and God and that all things are reconciled in him. Jesus so identified with us that he took on flesh and became man. He condescended and humbled himself to the extent that the one who created man and woman would be dependent on his father and mother to care for him. The one who is perfectly righteous and clean would partake in circumcision and baptism. The one who is the bread of life would feel hunger pains. The light of the world would dwell in the midst of darkness. The living water would know what thirst feels like. The all-powerful God would sympathize with our weakness. The sinless one would experience temptation. The one who knew no sin would become sin on our behalf, and the author of life would himself die. We need to try to truly grasp that. God, all-powerful, holy God, put on flesh to identify with you and me, to live the, the righteous life that we could never live, to bear the penalty of sin in his body on the cross for you, for me. That's the extent he went to, to identify with you. And the main point today is that the life that is united to Christ will be marked by sanctification until the day of glorification. Now on your notes there, 
I made a little mistake last night on that handout. The definition out in the brackets is for the word sanctification. So if you want to write sanctification over that, that's what that means. So again, main point, the life that is united to Christ will be marked by sanctification until the day of glorification. And before we read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you are holy. You are glorious. You are high and lifted up. You are the one true and living God. And we praise you this morning, Lord, for for what you have done in, in sending your Son in the likeness of man so that we might be united to him, so that we might know him. We pray that you would further reveal yourself to us today in the word, Lord that you would change our hearts, that it would result in in changed lives. We pray all of this would bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 to 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you, will, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, 
do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So point number one today is identification as foundation. Verse one starts out and says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So here in verse one, and in the previous chapter, chapter two, over and over again, Paul uses this, these phrases of, of us being identified with Christ or in Christ. Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ. And in chapter two, he says, you have been filled in him, and in him you were circumcised. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead, dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Notice also verses three and four of today's passage. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Union with Christ is the central focus in all the scriptures. The Bible begins with God dwelling with man in the garden in perfect unity. And it ends in Revelation with God himself declaring from the throne with a loud voice, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And if union with God is the central focus of the scriptures, then the cross is the pinnacle of that focus. From all eternity, God's plan was that he would reconcile all things to himself in Christ. And this was accomplished at the cross. By faith, we are so united to him that we are reckoned to be there in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection. By faith and repentance, we died to sin. Our old self was crucified on that cross with Jesus. The old sinful man was placed in the tomb. Not only that, but Paul in Ephesians 2.6 tells us that he raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God not only made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, but he has seated us with the reigning Christ in the heavenly places. Now, just as Adam was our federal head, he represented all of mankind. And we were counted as being in him. So that when Adam fell into sin and death, we fell and died with him. But now the second Adam, 
Christ as our federal head through faith represents us as we are in him. So even in his ascension and enthronement as the God-man, we are seated with him. It's difficult for us to grasp these realities, to wrap our minds on them, to lay hold of them. And I think it's difficult because we don't perceive it as reality. We live in this broken world, in these sin-plagued and broken bodies. We see our circumstances and experiences as reality. But what Paul wants us to see here is a truer, deeper, ultimate reality. He wants us to see as God sees. Now the scriptures are full of pictures of this union that we have with Christ. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. We're called living stones being built up into a, into a house for God to dwell in. We are called the temple of God. We are members of the body of Christ. Jesus himself also said, Abide in me, and I in you. Union with Jesus is the heart of the gospel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are of no benefit unless you are united to him by faith. If you are in Christ, then when God looks at you, he sees Christ, conditionally and positionally. Conditionally, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. And positionally, he sees you as dead, buried, raised, ascended, and seated with Christ at the right hand of God in the heavens. And Paul tells us to seek these things. To set our minds on these things on who Christ is and who we truly are in him. We struggle to see the reality that God sees because it's hidden from our sight. It's hidden with Christ in God. And because we live in this flesh, our perception of reality is skewed because we experience lusts and temptations and desires and failings, and more failings, and pain, and sorrow, and guilt. We live in a way with one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth, in this already, but not yet. As citizens of heaven, but living here on the earth. But God sees you and I right now, as seated with Christ. This is the truer, deeper reality. He has fixed a day and time when the heavenly and earthly 
will merge into one reality. When, as verse 4 says, Christ will appear and we appear with him in glory. But until that time, we must constantly be reminded of the truer reality. We must constantly seek the things that are above, the things that are really true. Now, for the three years that Jen and I were waiting to be matched for adoption, our experience was one of ups and downs. We had the excitement of the planning, the waiting, the hopes rising, the the rejection, the sadness, the frustration, and indifference. Then we had the support and the encouragement from friends, the calls to perseverance, and finally, the phone call and the rejoicing. the tears of joy. And the day we got finally got to see and hold our son. And in the midst of that time, it was so easy to be discouraged and to feel defeated. And it seemed as though the day would never come. That was our experience of reality. But our God is sovereign. And by his providence, he had fixed a specific day in time with a specific child when everything would finally come to fruition. And all along, it was going to be that day. All along, it was going to be wilder. God decreed it, and it was so. That was the truer, deeper reality. We just couldn't see it because it was hidden from us. If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans 6. We'll be looking briefly at verses 9 through 14. Romans 6, verses 9 through 14. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Listen, church. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, 
since you are not under the law, but under grace. As we see the truer, deeper reality of who Christ is and our union to him, we will see that we are already dead to sin and alive to God. Sin has no dominion over us. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness because we are a new creation with a new identity, a new nature. This is the true reality. You're new. So live in the truth of this reality. Consider it to be true. This brings us to point two, which is sanctification as mortification. I think on the handouts there, I I tried to give you all some definitions for some of these fancy theological words. But verse verse 5 of our passage tells us, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In light of the glory of who Christ is and our identity in him, we are commanded to put our sin to death. Scripture is clear that by union with Christ, we are already holy and righteous and clean. But while we remain in this flesh, though ultimately defeated, Sin must be mortified. It must be put to death. Again and again. We must set our mind on the heavenly reality in order to slay the earthly. But throughout the Old Testament, we see over and over that God's people, the Israelites, um, doing battle against their enemies. In the book of Exodus, we see God freeing the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, and ultimately he sends them into the promised land. The the land, by all rights, already belongs to them because God has given it to them. But there are enemies in the land. And God commands the Israelites to utterly destroy all of these pagan peoples. And when they do, to tear down the high places, the altars, and the idols. Now there are periods where the Israelites obey. And when they do, they experience the fellowship and blessings of God. But more often than not, they fail to destroy their enemies. Or they leave up the idolatrous high places. And before long, they themselves become just like the Gentile nations, doing wicked deeds, worshiping false gods. Church, we must not follow the path of the Israelites in this. We must destroy our enemies, the flesh and sin. We must do violence to our sin 
and we must attack it at its root. Paul in verse 5 lists a few of these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And here in verse 5, he's, he's moving from the outward expression of the sin. Sexual immorality is any physical sexual act done outside of God's good design for sex. His design is for one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. And impurity speaks of a moral corruption. In other words, an approval of or justification of sin. Passion speaks of an affection of the mind or emotions. The thought of carrying out the deed excites or pleases you. Evil desire is a craving or longing for what is forbidden. It's lust. And covetousness is wanting that which does not belong to you. And Paul equates this to idolatry. The worship of something other than God. This is what is at the heart or the root of these sins. God and his good design is what is to bring us satisfaction and contentment. And when we covet something else, we are at the foundation saying to God, I don't want you. You don't satisfy. You don't bring me joy. And we effectively take God off of the throne and enthrone our lusts in his place in our hearts. It's a pathetic God to have enthroned in your heart. First Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And he goes on to say, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These sins listed here in verse 5 are sins that defile and degrade our own bodies. We are created in the image of God. We were created to glorify God in our bodies. And instead we use our bodies for self-glorification and gratification. In Proverbs 6.27, speaking in the context of sexual immorality, the writer asks, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Are we really so deceived to think that we can carry on in sexual sin, whether in the act or in the heart, without any consequence? John Owen says in his book, The Mortification of Sin, let not man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. Men, what are you fixing your eyes upon? Don't be so foolish as to think that it's not hurting anyone. You're destroying yourself and you're grieving your Lord. And ladies, what kind of books are you reading? 
What kind of sensual shows are you watching? Is it glorifying to Christ? Is it in any way drawing you closer to him? If it's true that you become what you behold, then we must stop beholding filth. We so often minimize our sin. We don't take seriously the desires that rise up in our hearts. But Paul says in verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in Revelation 21.8, it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And again, John Owen in Mortification of Sin says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, if you've ever, feels like an abrupt transition. If you've ever done any gardening, Has there ever been a day that you went out to your garden where you didn't find at least one weed? Weeding is a never-ending battle. If you leave your garden unattended for days or weeks or months, eventually the herbs and fruit and vegetables and flowers that you've planted are going to be so overwhelmed that the weeds will have taken over to the point that you could hardly even tell that a garden was ever planted there. When is the best time to deal with weeds? It's when they're small. The first sight of them. Just pluck them out by the root. By the root. And like the Israelites, we must tear down the high places of idolatry in our hearts. We must pull the weed by the root and tear down the high places of idolatry in our hearts. And verse 7 says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul here wants the Colossians and wants us to be reminded that their sin no longer defines who they are. They once walked in them when they were living in them, but now their life is hidden with Christ. The believer now walks and lives in Christ. In verses 8 and 9, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. While the, ver- the, the list of verses in, ver- in, excuse me, the list in verse 5 shows us the fruits of lustful cravings and appetite that defile the image of God in ourselves, this list here in 8 and 9 shows us sins of untempered passions and impulses that result in sins of the tongue 
which harm and defame others, culminating in strife and division. Anger here is not a righteous anger. It's an agitation of the soul. And as anger grows into wrath or rage, we ultimately reach the point of malice, of wishing harm or injury upon someone else. These are all sins of the heart, which are expressed in slander, obscene talk, and lies. How seriously do you take the sins of your tongue? If you're like me, not nearly serious enough. But James, in chapter 3 of his epistle, says this about the tongue. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. The list of sins in verses 5, 8, and 9 are not exhaustive, but they are representative of all sin, which causes harm to self and harm to others. It defiles the image of God within us and defames the image of God in others. They are an assault on unity with God and with neighbor. While some of us may make light of sin, others of of us may be all too aware of just how depraved, sinful we are. And we can, be, we can be given over to despair. The weight of all our sin can be overwhelming. It's so easy to feel defeated and to resign ourselves to a life of guilt and shame and to feel like we will never have victory. The words of Paul in Romans 7 speak of this struggle when he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members, as in my flesh, another law is waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And if that's all that he said, we would have reason to despair. But he doesn't stop there. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. But listen, church, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Christ has delivered us. He has set us free. We are no longer slaves of sin. There is no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. We can break out of the cycle of guilt and shame and doubt, and we can have assurance and grow in maturity in him. Verse 9 continues, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The old self has been put off, church. The new self has been put on. It's done. We're new. And since we're new, we must continually be being renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ. We must look to Christ. Look to who he is. Look to who you are in him. And as we do this and wage war against our sin, we will be renewed daily to look a little more like Jesus from one degree of glory to the next, reflecting the heavenly reality. And we will have victory and be empowered to bear the full weight of temptation because Jesus already bore it. And because the spirit of Christ dwells in us. Jesus sent the promised helper. The spirit of the living God is dwelling within you. Now last week, Matt, highlighted the work of the Spirit in administering the comfort of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit comforts us in our trials and affliction by pointing us to the one who was afflicted for us. The Spirit also works in us in our battle against sin and temptation and the schemes of the enemy by pointing us to the one who became sin for us and who, as Hebrews 4.15 says, is our high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Spirit enables and empowers us to withstand temptation, to mortify sin. This power and the beholding of the one who already accomplished the victory is found by being renewed in knowledge through the word of God by the power and illumination of the Holy Spirit. As he renews us, our sin is put to death the sin that defiled and defamed and divided us will be mortified. Which brings us to point number three, unification in sanctification.
verse 11 says, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. The sins of passion and impulse are manifested in sin against one another. We must individually pursue holiness, putting off the old man, mortifying our sin. But church, we must do this corporately as well. We are members of the body of Christ. Individually and collectively, we are united to Christ. The body of Christ is made of members from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every ethnic background, Greek and Jew. Religious upbringing, circumcised and uncircumcised. Uncultured people, barbarians. Wicked and violent people, Scythians. People of different social statuses, slave and free. In the world, there are endless examples of hatred and division among all these peoples. But in the body of Christ, Christ is all and in all. We are united in Christ. All worldly distinctions are removed. They no longer identify us. We are, church, one new man. One body, united by one spirit, in one faith, under one Lord. And by God's good design, as we are united in Christ, we take part in the sanctification of the body. For this purpose, we, collectively like Paul, must proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this we toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. We pour out our lives for the sake of one another. We love and care about the body of Christ. I need to fight for your sanctification. And I need you to fight for mine. And come to point four, which is at this stage of the sermon, too late to stop with the T-I-O-N words. So it's sanctification as vivification. That's V-I-V. Sanctification as vivification. Vivification is the action of giving life to something or someone. We've looked at sanctification and mortification, putting to death. Now we look at sanctification in putting on life. We, church, must put on life. Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. As we seek the things above and set our mind on the truer realities of who Christ is and who we are in Him, we put on the character 
and attributes of Christ. So when Paul says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, again, church, he's, he's highlighting the fact that we are chosen by God. We're holy. We're already holy. It means set apart. You're given access to God. We're loved by God. We're united to God. You're a new creature. So act like a new creature. So put on Christ. Put on the character of Christ. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These attributes display for us the heart of who God is. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, displayed and modeled for us these things. He reveals the heart of God towards his people. In church, we're told in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. And we have the spirit of Christ dwelling in us. So church, make every effort to walk in the Spirit, to put on the character of Christ. As we abide in Him, and He in us, we can't help but to put on His character, church. We can't help but to put our sin to death. And in verse 13, we are to bear with one another. As the body of Christ, we must bear with our brothers and sisters to encourage and admonish, rebuke in love. We must come alongside and teach and correct, counsel, aid, grieve, and mourn with our fellow believers. Because that's the character of Christ. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Christ has forgiven every trespass and sin that you ever committed against him. He remembers it no more. So in turn, we ought to forgive those who sinned against us, church. And he says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is defined by who? Not as the world defines love. Not an accepting, you do you and I'll, I, I do me and we'll all be good. No, we love as God defines love. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love of God and love of neighbor, church, is only accomplished in the spending of time in the word of God. It's only accomplished in spending time with the God whom you are to love. Your heart and its affections will not be changed otherwise. Your heart and affections for your neighbor will never be changed, devoid of the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. Peace between us and God. Peace with one another. All of these things that we're to put on, church, display the character and nature of our Lord. This is who we're to be. This is our identity. This is the new man. This is the new creation. But how do we accomplish it? How do we kill our sin? How do we put on life? How do we strive for unity in the body? How do we abide in Christ? How do we walk in the Spirit? Verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Church, there's not some special formula for becoming holy. No special formula to sanctification. There's not some secret knowledge that we must attain. There is one thing we must do. We must simply let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. In it, we see Christ revealed. In it, we see who we are in him. This is where we seek the things that are above. And we make it our highest pursuit to know him, to be fixated upon him, so that he becomes our highest treasure, our deepest joy, our satisfaction, our identity. And if you find yourself in a place where your love has grown cold, where your desire to be in the word and walking in the spirit has grown dim, you cannot manufacture these things in your heart. So what do you do? You confess your sin and your apathy. You repent and you seek him in his word and you keep setting your mind on him. Even when you don't want to, even when you don't feel like it, church. You do it anyway. You keep setting your mind on him and you pray. And the spirit of God is the one who changes hearts. He is the one that fills you with Christ. Who changes your desires. And he uses the means of his word and prayer, and the people of God. 
And when this is what our life is defined by, we will mortify sin because we will be putting on the one who is our life. We will simultaneously put off the old and put on the new. It's impossible, church, to wear them both. When we individually and collectively make this our sole pursuit, we will overflow with teaching and admonishing one another. We won't be able to stop talking about Jesus because he will be our life. We'll talk about him with our children, with our spouses, with our friends, and with our neighbors, and with one another. And when we sit in our houses, and when we walk by the way, and when we lie down, and when we rise up, and we'll be filled with such joy that no matter our circumstances, we will pour forth in songs and hymns and spiritual songs of praise to our King. We will be a people of song. Finally, in verse 17, he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every aspect of our lives will be devoted to bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And we'll give thanks to God, the Father, through him. The heart that is filled with the truth, the truth of the, the, the truer, deeper reality, will overflow with thankfulness to God for who he is, and for what he's done, and for who we are in him. So church, if you have been raised with Christ, seek him. Set your mind on him. And when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Let's pray.